Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're still talking about the absolute proof of a surrendered life. The absolute proof of a surrendered life. I love the psalmist and we, all the psalms, but particularly Psalms 42 and verse 1. We sing it all the time in our church as the deer pants for the water brooks so my soul thirst or as one translation says in the American pants for thee O Lord what is it you thirst for this morning let me ask it another way as if Paul was asking the church of Corinth what are you attached to this morning what or who is it that you're drawing from them what really is not sufficient to meet your need but you really need to come back to the fountain of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be attached to Him, just Him. I want to tell you something. If, and I'm saying it in my own words, but Paul in his letter to the Corinthians could easily be saying, when you're seeking the Lord and you're attached to Him, gifts pale to non-existence and to unimportance. But when you're seeking a gift, you're missing out on the fountain that you could truly draw from. The Corinthian church were attached to people, to the flesh, but they were not living attached to Christ. What a sad thing. What a sad thing. But how can we point a finger at them? How many times in our own life we do the same thing? We'd rather have the experience or the feeling or the emotion. We'd rather have the gift than we would just simply bask in the presence of the giver. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul uses a word here that's very important. He starts off and he says, if. I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And then he goes on in verse 2, and if I have the gift of prophecy. And verse 3, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. The word if there is an important little word. It's a little word. It's a unique word. It's the little word yan, E-A-N transliterated. Now that's different from the little word if, E-I. If, the little, little word E-I means hypothetically. In other words, I'm creating a circumstance that can never happen. And even though eon could, could end up that way, it's more the if that means the condition that experience will determine. And it's always in the future. So the Apostle Paul says we're all growing. We're all getting to a certain point. Let's just say now I've arrived. I've arrived. I've, I've speaking in other languages. And, and I think he's also saying <clears throat> that seems to be what you're trying to do. <laughs> Paul says, okay, let's just put me in the picture here and 
Let's just say I've arrived. And we all are going to arrive one day when Christ comes for us and we're glorified and we're made to know as we're known and there's going to come that day. And Paul said, okay, let's just say down here on earth that I've gotten there. That's that point that all of you Corinthians are trying to get to. I'm speaking in languages not only of men but languages of angels. I'm able to tell forth truth and even to foretell the future. I'm able to unlock every mystery of God. I even have all knowledge. That's where you seem to want to be. That's where you seem to spend all your time. You seem to want to get to a certain point. Let's just say I've gotten there. I've arrived. I'm perfect. I have fully matured in all of these areas. But I've missed out on the single most important thing that ought to be in my life, and that's the love that only the fruit of the Spirit can produce. Paul says, say I have arrived, and you Corinthians sure are on that journey, and let's just say you've arrived, and I've arrived, and we don't have that love in our life. He basically says, then we're nothing more than noisy nothings. Look at verse 1 and 2. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, the word tongues means languages, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, an irritating noise. And then he says in verse 2, and if I have the gift of prophecy, which with Paul would be the telling forth of truth, but prophecy also includes the foretelling of the future. It happened many times in the New Testament. And know all mysteries, be able to unlock the hidden things of God, which only God can reveal. And all knowledge. And then he adds one we haven't really looked at. And, all, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains. But do not have love. I am what? Nothing. Do you notice the way he changes? With speaking languages, he said, if I've gotten to that point, I'm just nothing more than an irritating noise. Then he comes over to prophecy and he adds the mysteries, knowing all mysteries and knowledge and then having all faith. And he says, I'm nothing. And then he comes down to the great deeds that you could do and says it profits me nothing. So there are three statements he makes here. One is irritating noise. One is I've become nothing. The other is it profits me nothing. Now, is the point clear or is it not clear? Why is chapter 13 put where it's put? Because the Corinthian People, the Corinthian believers, were doing what many of us get trapped into doing in our day and time. They're seeking other, after other things than the giver of all the gifts and the manifestations. If you seek after him, he said, that's the key. Now there's one we didn't really touch last week. And it's the last part of verse 2. He says, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now that's a powerful statement there. The word all here is the word panta. Panta means each and every act of faith plus all the faith put together. <laughs> That's quite an arrival point, folks. I mean, that, you can't get any further than that. I mean, he has the kind of faith that has so fully matured, then he goes on and qualifies it. He says, so as to remove mountains. Woo! That's faith. The word remove there is the word that comes from two Greek words. One is the word meta, which has the idea of denoting change or place or condition. And the other word is the word istomi, which means to stand or to place something. In other words, to move from this place to this place. I believe we get the word metastasized from that, when something is moved from here to here. In other words, he says, if I have come to the point that I could actually believe God so much so that I could speak to this mountain 
Lookout Mountain, I don't like where you are. You move, change places with Signal Mountain, and suddenly two mountains change. He said, if I could come to that place, if I could be so fully matured in my walk with God that I could literally speak in a mountain, be moved from one place to another. Now the word faith there is the word pistis, which means the ability to believe. The ability to so trust God to see God in action in my life. If I have that kind of ability. But then he says, but if I do not have love, I'm nothing. Man, Paul says, you know, if Paul doesn't have their attention by now, they're just not listening. Buy some ears, Corinthians. This is what they're looking for. Whoa, here's a guy who walks in and says, man. You mean, you mean, Paul, there might be an opportunity for me to get to that place? To speak languages of men and of angels, to declare truth, to understand mysteries, to have all knowledge, and whoa, to speak and move a mountain? Man, that would be so exciting. You have to get inside their minds right now. Probably somebody would say in the 20th century, whoo, I could be on TV if I could get to that place in my life. Now the world would think I'm spiritual because they could look at me and see the great things that I could do for God. And then the Apostle Paul pops her bubble. And he says, if I have no love in that, then I'm nothing. I am nothing. And I can hear their minds as, he, as he's writing this. Oh, there's something else. Now, whoo, I want to get to that level. I want to get to that level. Can we have a discipleship course on that? Twelve steps on how to arrive. But how do I get the love if the love has to be there? Come on, Paul, tell me. How do I get the love? And the only way to get the love is to get rid of the idea that you want to get here with your gifts and come back in humility and surrender to the one who gives them. It's incredible. The picture here. How can anybody miss what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14? He's saying that's the better way. It's to seek the giver, never seek the gift. Matter of fact, it's the only way. I'm getting the idea as I'm studying this that the more I seek gifts, the more I even concentrate on gifts, the less usable I am in the kingdom of God. And over the years, we have taught gifts, and gifts are important if you're connected to the giver. But if you're not connected to the giver, forget gifts. Forget it because it's not important. It'll absolutely radically turn your life upside down. Gifts become the supreme thing. Manifestations become the supreme thing. And Christ loses his preeminence in your life. Back away, bow down, and just surrender to him. Then, if he wants you to know the gifts, he'll teach you. But don't go seeking after them. Don't go seeking after them. And don't think if you have them, they make you spiritual. Because if the love is not there, Paul says, I'm nothing. The word nothing there when he says that is the word uthis. It means absolutely in no way, shape, or form am I anything. It's kind of like you had a list of 100 things and 100 being the top. He says, I'm minus 10 if I don't have that love in my life. If I don't have that love, I am nothing. Then he just does something in, in verse 3. You can maybe question some of the things he says up until this point and say, well, I can see what you're saying there, Paul. But there's one thing, Paul. If you really love people, you'll give everything you have to feed the poor. If you really love people, you'll be willing to die for them. And that, that should show a surrendered life, shouldn't it, Paul? And Paul says, ah, let's take that area. Let's just take that area. Verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Now, 
That's pretty, that's pretty strong. All my people. The word all means all. I'm willing to give everything. My, my salary, my car, my house, my furniture, my money, everything I'm willing to give to feed the poor. This must prove me spiritual, shouldn't it? Doesn't it prove me spiritual? You know, I hesitate any time to call a name because it always gets me in trouble, but I can't help it. If it's just there, I'm going to say it. But you know, Mother Teresa died this past year, and, and I don't know where she is and what she thinks and all. I only know one thing, that she signed the document that Mary would be the co-redeemer of the world. And on one side of the cross, you have Jesus. On the other side, you have Mary. And they want to make Mary the co-redeemer and say that Mary was actually virgin-born of her mother, Anna, instead of, instead of just Jesus being our Redeemer. And I don't, I don't understand why that's there, and I don't understand where she's coming from, but people seem to deify people that do great deeds for the poor, and they say to themselves, this person must be spiritual. And Paul says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and you can't get any better than what we have seen, exemplified this past year in this dear lady's life. And I can't answer this question. And only God can answer this question. But my question is, don't look at somebody like that and say, well, I want to be like them because they may not have an ounce of God's love in them. This may be nothing more than a humanistic effort to do something to prove yourself spiritual. God, Paul says, if you give everything you have to feed the poor, it profits you nothing if that love is not present. In your life. Now I'll tell you what, folks, that, that rattles the cage of religion in the 20th century. Because people think, well, I gave money to the church and I and I'm trying to be the best I could possibly do, and I and I give to the poor, and I and I come on, man, aren't I spiritual? And God says, Listen, you don't give me time of day. You won't let my word renew your mind, you won't let my spirit fill your life. You're doing all this thing to prove yourself spiritual. Just like the Corinthians were doing all these things to prove themselves spiritual. But the very thing you're missing is the only thing that can prove you spiritual. It's my love produced in you. I've been on the mission field many times and I've had missionaries come up to me after preaching and they said to me in tears, they said, man, we're only here because of some horrendous sin in our life and we came here to see if we could repay God for what we did to offend him. We're miserable, they said. I mean, I've had it said to me. And they say, we're only here for that reason. Do you realize all the effort that was spent on the mission field? We bring them home to a missions conference, deify them, put them up on a platform, and not one single thing they did was of God. It was nothing more than fleshly works because it didn't have the love mark on it of a surrendered life. That's tough. That's tough to me. I don't know about you. That's tough. That kills any effort of my flesh to try to be spiritual. I mean, he gets out of the prophecy. He gets out of all the experiences. Now he comes down to where, it's really, where it really hits the road. And then he says something else. He says, let's go a step further. And if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing Gracious sakes alive, what is Paul telling us? He's, what he's just done in those verses there is disarmed man-made religion right there. I mean, he's totally disarmed it. 
Nothing that you can do or I can do, nothing I can experience or feel is going to prove me to be spiritual. The only thing that proves that I'm connected to Christ and attached to Him is the love of His Spirit that's produced in my life and in your life. That's the only thing we have. It's that love that marks us. It's that love that makes us what we say we are. He said, it profits me nothing. The word profit there is the word that means to give an advantage, to bring forth a profit. Now, what kind of profit is he talking about? The word nothing, by the way, is a zero with the lid kicked off. It's nothing. Profits me nothing. Does it profit others? Absolutely. You give all your money to feed the poor, they're going to be fed. They were profited by it. He's not, he didn't say it didn't profit them. He said it didn't profit me. How does he mean profit him? Does he mean physical, material wealth that comes back to him? No, that can't be what Paul says because we know his heart and we know his life. It has to be in a spiritual sense. Spiritually, it brings no advantage to me whatsoever. Now, what advantage is it for us to receive Christ and to live as a vessel through which he can work? The only advantage is not, well, the, I say the only. There's an advantage of experiencing his, his character in us and the, the advantage of experiencing the fullness of that life. But there's also something else, and Paul has, has already brought it out in Corinthians, and that's the reward we're looking forward to one day. When we stand before God and we say, Oh God, I gave everything I had to feed the poor, and I, Oh God, I did all of these things in your name. And God says, But you missed something, Wayne. Son, you missed it. And therefore, it's profited you nothing. There's no reward here for you at all because you didn't do it as a surrendered vessel. To me. Well, I tell you what, if he hasn't got their attention, he sure has gotten my attention, then what in the world is it that proves to anybody that we're useful, that we're spiritual, that God can even use us? Is it my experience? Is it my gift? Is it, what is it? And Paul has so clearly brought it out. It's only the love that Christ can produce in and through your life. I hear this preached sometimes, and people say, now listen to me, go out and love your brother, and they miss the whole point. You can't love. You see, this is the whole thing. The Christian life is impossible to live. <laughs> That's why Christ came to live it through us. He's the embodiment of that love. Matter of fact, everything Paul said, if I finally arrive, that's everything Jesus is. And therefore, the only way for me to experience any of it is to surrender to him so that it's him in me and through me that people can see, see the glory of what he's doing. Well, to me, he has my attention. And now he leaves that and says, okay, all right. Let's just talk about what love is. We know that a language without love is irritating noise. We know that prophecy, all knowledge, even unlocking mysteries, and all faith, if you don't have love, just makes you nothing. You're nothing. You're nothing at all. And then he says, all the great acts of service, I mean, being benevolent, giving to the poor, even dying for others, it may benefit them, but it doesn't benefit you spiritually. It doesn't prove a thing. My goodness, if that's true, then I need to find out what this love is, and so do you. And so Paul eases in now and shows them what this love is. And I'll tell you what, this is like, let me, let me, if I was a classroom teacher and you had a desk in front of you, I'd say, take all the books off your desk and take out a clean sheet of paper, and let's just find out where we are this morning. Let's just find out where we are. Wayne, you ready to find out where you are? Well, I guess so. Are you ready to find out where you are? The Apostle Paul said, let's just see where we all are. And he's going to tell us now what this love is that we cannot produce. You can't fake this. You can fake all the gifts. You can't fake the fruit. The fruit is there, 
Only if God's love is produced in your heart. And that's how you know your walk is where it ought to be with God surrender to him. All right, let's jump in. First of all, he says, in verse 4, he begins the list here, love is patient. Love is patient. Now, the translation sometimes uh, make us think of this or that, but I'm intrigued by the first thing Paul always mentions. I've never seen this in a book or nobody's ever told me that, but in my studies, every time I come to a list, I always notice the first thing. I don't know why. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then he begins to describe that love. And every list that he makes is that way. Peter is very similar. When they make a list, look at the first thing he's talking about. And the first thing he mentions is a relationship word, horizontal. Not just vertical, but horizontal. He gets down to where we all live. And he says, if you really want to know if you have love in the church of Corinth, if you really want to know if these gifts are truly of God, then let's look at something, push all that aside. Let's look at your relationships with one another. And immediately we see where he's going. Why? Because he's already told us there's division in Corinth. And the word is schism. And it means they've been ripped apart by all this garbage he's trying to deal with. And so he says, let's just, let's just look at it. At your relationships. And Corinth already stands guilty. I don't know why they didn't just get up and walk out and say, well, let's go home. We, we have no hope here because we're guilty of this. There's no, there's no love in Corinth, folks. No love at all. Well, they got a lot of manifestations and gifts. But there's no love. So what does that tell you about everything that's going on in Corinth? Paul begins with that relationship word. The word patient is the word macrothumia. M-A-C-K-R-O, transliterated, T-H-U-M-I-A. Thumia is the last part of the word. Macrothumia. The word macro means long. You just stretch it out as far as you can stretch it. Macro. Then the word thumia is the word that means intense anger. <laughs> it's the word that means wrath. It's translated wrath other places. Now, wait a minute, long anger. <laughs> I know some people like that. No, 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 <laughs> you got to understand the word. The word has the idea of suppressing any kind of anger when you've been ill-treated by somebody, which is implicit in the word, that you're willing to tolerate and put up with it for a long time. It doesn't mean that that anger will never fall, but it means that it's, it endures, it endures, it endures, it endures. It suffers, as some translations put it, it suffers long at the ill-treatment somebody is dishing out towards you. Wow. You know, that's the same kind of love God has for us. Look in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. This is his love towards us. You think God hates sin? You better believe it. But he loves sinners. And he's willing to put up with the ill treatment that sin brings towards him, the affront that it brings towards him because he has a heart burden for us. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. And it's talking about the judgment he's going to bring one day to this world. It's going to be judged by fire. But he said he's patient towards you. <laughs> he's willing to put up with a lot of garbage. Why is he willing to do that? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. For that reason, he's willing to put up with a lot of junk down. Hey, I am so grateful for the long suffering of God in my life. It's a wonder God hadn't killed me years ago. You say, well, Wayne, if you're like that, should we listen to you? Well, hey, what's going on out there? You think you deserve to be where you are? The long suffering of God 
That's the character of God. So that character now is in us. So when love is present in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, you don't go sue your brother because he's wronged you. No, you have the character of God. This is his love. You're willing to endure with somebody when you've been ill-treated. You've been willing to, to forbear with them. Why? Because God's love is in you. That's what he's talking about. The Corinthians stood guilty. There was not a thing they could say. They're guilty. This kind of love is present in chapter 8 through 10. You don't trample over your brother just because you have a knowledge that he doesn't have. It makes you sensitive. But also, if you're that brother that's been trampled on, you can in any way not retaliate because you have a love within you and God will not allow you on either side to tolerate that kind of thing, to, to, put, to do that kind of thing. When this love is present in chapter 11, you don't, the rich don't look down on the poor and, tramp, and, and make them hungry while they eat all the food at the Lord's Supper and desecrate everything that God is doing. See, that's what they were doing. And isn't it beautiful that Paul starts right here? He says, hey, I want to show you what it is. You say, well, I've got this gift, Wayne, and I've had this manifestation, and I had this miracle happen in my life. Whoa! And, and, and Paul says, hey, cool it. There's division in your church. That tells me everything I need to know. And if there's division, there's no love. And if there's no love, there's no surrender. So whatever you're calling spiritual hadn't got a, hadn't got a thing, thing to do with spirituality. Love is patient. You don't give up on one another with this kind of love. You don't give up on one another. And boy, he begins to now unveil it. He comes in another word, is married right to it. Two positive qualities, seven negative qualities. And those seven negative basically enhance these two first qualities that he mentions. He says love is kind. In verse 4, the one thing that you find about the Corinthian church was they thought only of themselves, of what was good for them. Well, look at this word. The word for kind is the word krestevome. It's the word that comes from krestos, which means to be useful, <laughs> to be useful to somebody. You see, without love, you, you can't relate to others because you don't have the patience, but without love, you're useless when it comes to others. You have no concept of what's best for them. You only have your concept of what's best to you. The kindness here is an attitude that's expressed with the words, what can I do to help you? What can I do to see that you might get to this place? Not what can I do to me to get to that place. What can I do to help you to get to where you want to be in your Christian walk? It's patient. It tolerates a lot of garbage. It puts up with it because it has a heart motivation to change that person, to see that person come to know Christ or whatever it is. But it's also kind, and the kindness in it has an attitude that I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to help you, to be useful to you. I know when Paul was in Philippi, or, or rather wrote the book of Philippians, he was in prison in Rome, and when he wrote it, he says, I'm in a dilemma, I'm caught between two things. To die to me is gain, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I don't know which way I want to go, but for, for your benefit, then I wish to stay. Because of the kindness of God in my heart, I want to be useful to you. I want you, I want you to be blessed by me and for my surrender to him. Man, how clear can you get? How clear can you get? This is an antithesis of everything that's going on in Corinth. It's totally opposite. They had no concern for each other. They only had concern for gifts and, and certain gifts. And they thought they were greater gifts. And if they had them, they were more spiritual than everybody else. And they were not useful to anybody. People were useful to them to help them get to where they wanted to go. But they in no way were useful to others, you see. 
And that begins to set the pace for what he's talking about. Boy, it just, all of my life, I, I have studied 13, but I never have studied the context of Corinthians and 12 and how it fits between 12 and 14. There's just nothing here, you see, that the Corinthians had that love says must be there. But then he shows now what love that is patient and love that is kind. And that's the two positive things he mentions first. He gives seven negative things as if to say, do you really want to understand what patient love is and, and what kindness is when, when we talk about it? We can define the words, but let's give seven illustrations of what it's not. And by these seven illustrations of what it's not, I think you can better understand now what it is. Seven things. The first one he mentions here is that love is not jealous. Love is patient, love is kind, and then he starts the negatives. And love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. You see, the word jealous there is the word zelo. It's the word that has to do with, it can be a good word. It, it comes from the word that means to boil over. It's the zeal that somebody has. You know, you, it's the excitement in their heart, the, 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 the zealousness at which they go about something. And it comes from that word. It can be a great word if you're zealous to let Christ live in and through your life. But here it's very obviously a bad thing. He said you, you're full of jealousy. It's the fleshly quality that cannot stand the good fortune of somebody else. Now, that's just tough, especially when you're going through some bad fortune. It's hard for you to rejoice when somebody else has good fortune, and only the love of Christ could allow you to rejoice when you yourself are going through something difficult and different than they are. So it's the word that has to do with robbing somebody of the joy that they're having because good things are going on in their life. Being, it's very akin to envy. Envy and jealousy are very difficult to separate. It's, it's like the enviousness in your heart. You see a brother that's rejoicing. <laughs> Love that is patient and kind cannot seek to rob others of their joy. The word not there is the word ooh, and it means not in any way, shape, or form. You can't covet what somebody else has. You can't, you can't be jealous of that. You can't, with that jealousy, rob them of their joy because of your own short-sightedness. Love won't, won't allow you to do that. And what was going on in Corinth? Man, the people that had the gifts, they, everybody was coveting these gifts, tongues, miracles, whatever it is, the manifestation. And he's saying, hey, love doesn't work that way. So I'm trying to show you what it isn't so that you can see what you're not. <laughs> I'm trying to show you the negative side of that. Love cannot be jealousy. The jealousy that's in Corinth in no way matches with the love that God produces. Then the second thing he mentions here in a negative way, it does not brag in verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Now the word for brag here is a different word than you'll find other places. It's, it's the little word only found here. And it's a synonym, and so it's hard to go someplace else and show you what it means, but it's a synonym of the word epiphaneo, which means to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. The, that braggadocious, uh, I, you see, in the culture of Corinth, you can't miss it. I've got this gift, buddy. I am more spiritual than you are. I wish you had this gift. That kind of attitude. He said God's love would not allow you to do that. God's love would not allow that to happen in any way. No humility in this word at all. No humility at all. No gratefulness, no, no concern for the brother at all. Not at all. It's just disappeared. It's not in this word whatsoever. <laughs> Heard about the three little boys talking about bragging. And 
they were talking about their daddies and how much they owned. And one of them said, my daddy's an architect, and buddy, he owns a whole subdivision because he planned it and, and bought it and built the houses and sold it, and he's rich. Another little boy said, that's nothing. My daddy's an engineer, and he's built the biggest bridges in all of the city and in and, and, and other places in the world. He owns every one of them. He, he's a rich man. Another boy said, my daddy's richer than both of your daddies. My daddy's a preacher. Preacher? He said, yep, and he owns hell. And the kid said, what do you mean he owns hell? He said, he does, I'm telling you. He came home from the deacons meeting the other night and said they gave it to him. But anyway, no bragging. <laughs> no bragging. <laughs> and the idea when you get into Corinth is this braggadocious, look at me, I'm higher than you, than I ought to think of myself. Look at the gifts I have, and if you don't know them, I'll show them to you. Then thirdly, he says, love is not arrogant. In the same verse, love does not brag. And then he says, love is not arrogant. And these, all these things are married to each other. It's, it's like the, each one takes it a little further and expresses another part of it. The word arrogant is the word we've already seen in 1 Corinthians. Fusio. Let me show you. Look back in chapter 4. Five times we've seen it already. And, it, and, 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 since, and since he's talked about it already, now you know he's directing this right to the Corinthian church. Look in verse 6 of chapter 4. He said, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. That was their biggest problem. In order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. And then he goes on and says, for who regards you as superior? <laughs> they did. That's that word arrogant, Fusio. Look in verse 18 of chapter 4. He says, now some of you have become arrogant as though I was not coming to you. You know, there was a few of them that were really bragging and becoming very arrogant, and they were saying, Paul's not coming, and if they figure they're going to take over. <laughs> Paul says in verse 19, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall, not, I shall find out, not the words of those of you who are arrogant. I'm not interested in what you're saying. He said, I'm going to find out about your power, where it's coming from. <laughs> because the power of God, you wouldn't be arrogant to start with. And I'm coming, but you better get ready. I'm coming. Look over in... Uh, Verse, or chapter 5, verse 2. And this is when the immorality was in the church and uh, nobody would deal with it. And they swept it under the rug. And he says in verse 2, And you have become arrogant and, and, and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. They wouldn't even deal with it. They'd become so arrogant they didn't even mourn over the horrendous sin that was right there inside, beside them in the church. Look in chapter 8 and verse 1. And these are the ones that have the knowledge of grace and what, how arrogant these people have become in that knowledge. And he's talking about things, eating meat, sacrificed to idols. And he says, now concerning things, sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. What is the word, fusio? Fusio is the word, and we've talked about it before. It means airbag, airbag. <laughs> A spiritual airbag is what Paul said. And when you have love in your heart, Number one, you don't brag, but secondly, you don't brag because you're not arrogant. You're not full of hot air. You're not going around blowing smoke. You're not trying to make people think you're something that you're not. You have a proper attitude of yourself in light of who you know God is. Now you know who you are, and you're willing to humble yourself. Tapinos, get down as far as you can possibly get. You don't want to get yourself up here and have people pointing to you. Fusio. It's the same illustration that I've used before when when you go to the store and buy one of those big bags of potato chips, it used to be one of my favorite health foods, and, and you, you get that big bag of potato chips and it says extra, extra, you get free, 
much more for the same price, and it's a big bag, and you think, whoa, I'll pay the price, and you take it home, and you open it up, and what's really in it? Air. That's all. Nothing in it at all. No substance. That's the word arrogant, fusio. And he says God's love has no arrogance in it. It's not going to allow you to brag about this gift or that experience or this emotion or whatever else. If, you've got, if you're filled with the love of God, that's not going to be present in your life whatsoever. You know, you know what I've discovered in my life, and this is just whatever's worth corner. I found that people that aren't teachable, that aren't teachable, are fusio. They're full of air. They think so highly of themselves that they can't listen to what you've got to say. And I've seen this all over the world. You get up, for instance, I have a different approach towards chapter 12. I wonder if anybody's been teachable in it. Because you see, some people have already made up their minds to the point. They can't listen to anybody anyway. Why? Because they think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Why? They would brag and they're arrogant and they're full of hot air. Usually is where it comes from. Well, the fourth thing he mentions of a negative sense of what love is not. He says in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. Does not act unbecomingly. Askimoneo. It's the word indecent. Don't act indecently. Has the idea. Back in chapter 7 in verse 36, it refers to a man who's kept his unmarried daughter at home. She's a virgin and not allowed her to marry. And now he realizes he's brought disgrace upon her. It's something he has done to cause her to be disgraced. An action of his own that's caused disgrace to come upon another. An outward behavior that brings disgrace on everybody. And what was going on in Corinth? You get over in chapter 14, everybody was standing up, speaking in this language, speaking in that language. Man, it was so confusing, it sounded like a madhouse. And he said, what are you doing? You're bringing disgrace by everything that you're doing openly and publicly to everyone who comes. And God's love does not allow that kind of thing. By your behavior, causing somebody else to be disgraced. God's love will not allow that. And this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. Man, he, these are not just flippant words he's throwing out. These, everything he says is descriptive of what, of what the Corinthian church is not and what it ought to be. Then the fifth thing of the negatives that he mentions there, he says God's love that is patient and kind is something that does not seek its own. Does not seek its own. Now the word seek is very much like that word zealousness. It's zeteo, Z-E-T-E-O. It's the idea of striving to get something. Uh, the word uk there does not means in any way, shape, or form. And seek its own way means of itself. What he's talking about here is a self-centeredness. A person that's filled with God's love is not trying to do what he does, no matter if he puts it in the spiritual vocabulary or not, in, in any way to benefit himself. He's not doing it for himself. You know, that's the way I knew that I was lost. I've given my testimony many times that what happened to me back when I was in, I'd been in the ministry for eight years, I was not a pastor but one of the things that continually overwhelmed me was everything in my life somehow was done to benefit me. And that had so frustrated my life. And I got up one morning and got before the Lord. I thought I was saved when I was nine years old. I walked forward in the aisle and the preacher said to me, well, Wayne, have you ever lied to your mother? And I said, how do you think I got to be nine years old? I mean, are you kidding? Yeah, he convinced me of what I'd done, but he never showed me what I was. He said, man, all you got to do is pray this prayer and be baptized and everything's fine. And I went on in my life thinking I was saved, thinking that I had bowed before a holy God until I was 32 years old and realized that all of ministry had been nothing more than for Wayne's benefit, period. 
And I got before the Lord that morning. I said, oh, God, would you show me what you see in my life? And I cried till my nose bled when God showed me the filth of my flesh. He didn't show me that I'd sinned. He showed me that I was a sinner. And it's a huge difference. I'm not saved from what I've done as much as I'm saved from what I was. That's why he takes us out of Adam and puts us over into Christ. I want to tell you something. Even though my flesh tends to periodically, because it has the same pattern, just like it did in Corinth, you're always going to be influenced by your pagan past. Many, many times I've manipulated circumstances in the ministry since that time to benefit me, but God has broken my heart over it and brought me to the cross and made me confess it and made me surrender to him afresh and be cleansed of that. And that's how I know the difference in my life. When God's love is there, you cannot be in any way self-seeking. A great commentator made the statement, cure selfishness in the church and we'll all return to the Garden of Eden. Well, that's a powerful statement. Selfishness, self-interest. By the way, let me ask you a question. Why do you come to Woodland Park? Is there something here that serves a self-interest that you have? You're not here because maybe you have business associates here and perhaps you can get better business in the church if you come to Woodland Park. No, no, surely not. Why do you come? I want to tell you something. If it's only to benefit you, look out, look out, because it does not seek its own. That's pretty clear. Because it does not seek its own, the next one follows right on the heels of it. And of course, in, in Corinth, good grief, Selfishness abounded. But in, in the sixth one, he says, love is not provoked. Verse 5. The word for provoke comes from two words, para, movement towards something, oxeno, which means to sharpen or irritate, to provoke or to arouse somebody to anger or be aroused to anger. Really, has more to do with me being aroused to anger and you being aroused to anger. You see, verse 6 shows that there is a righteous anger because he says it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Certainly, Certainly when you don't rejoice in righteousness, you would have a righteous anger towards unrighteousness. But there, this is something different. It's tied to seeking its own. Now listen to me. Oh gosh, this, this so convicted me when I was studying it. A person who does what he does for himself, now listen to me, listen to me, is easily provoked. Easily provoked. Any illustrations going on in your family about that? Somebody is irritated with every single thing you do. You can't even get up and smile the right way. They're provoked at everything you do. What's wrong with them? It shows you a selfish interest and a flesh interest in their heart because when they're seeking their own, you're easily provoked. This provoking, uh, you can become angry very quickly. In Corinth, when another would be recognized for having this gift or that experience or this manifestation, some were provoked easily because they wanted that for themselves. And, and you see how that continues to, to fester. Telling our families that we love them, for instance, and then being easily provoked by everything they do tells, tells them something very clear. There's no love present, no love whatsoever. You know, you know how I understand what these things are not? Because I've been that so many times in my life. Have, you, have anybody else been there besides me? You ever get provoked at everybody around you? Nothing's right, nothing they do is right. Why? Because you've got your own agenda. Why? Because self is on the throne. But you have this gift. Oh, you have this ministry. Well, look at the effects. And God laughs because if the love is not there, you're useless to anybody. 
Well, the last thing he mentions here, the seventh negative that he brings up after these two positives, the patience and the kindness, he says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, that taking into account, whoa, is the word logizome. Oh, man. It means it's a bookkeeping term. Oh, man. To make a permanent record of something is when you keep something in a book. Oh, Brother Wayne, you offended me three years ago. You offended me. Do you know that? Well, get in line. I mean, there's a lot. You offended me. And you offended me a few months ago, too. And you offended me yesterday. Boy, you've got a great memory. You must have put that into a book somewhere where you kept it for a permanent record. But if you're living surrendered to Christ, there's no bookkeeping of wrongs done to you. Well, I want to tell you something, folks. <laughs> this will get you honest real quick on whether or not you're keeping a book or a record of wrongs. Actually, it says wrong suffered. The suffered is implied there. It's, it's the evil, and it's fleshly evil. Kakon. It's that word kakon is, is, is the fleshly evil. Evil that somebody has done to you and mistreated you. Hey, you want to be mistreated? Go into pastorate. I, I'm telling you, it's instant. Like, like being a referee in a ball game. I mean, but it's going to be there. You cannot keep a record of it. You cannot do that. Because if you do, it's proof to everybody you're not living filled with the Spirit of God. And secondly, it's proof to everybody you're not useful to the kingdom of God at all. You've become so self-centered. But hold on. I've got this gift. Well, I had this experience. Well, I had this manifestation of the Spirit. I didn't write this. Paul says if that love is there, then you won't be taking a wrong and keeping it a record of it for a permanent record so that you can bring it back. It hurt somebody else. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, I know i got to go, but if, I'm telling you, I'm only sharing with you, the, the study was far beyond what I'm sharing with you. I just decided to break it down. We don't have that many more weeks, I'm sure, until the Lord will take me out of here, and there's 50-some verses in 1 Corinthians 15, and I definitely want to try to get to that, so I'm not spending as much time I know as some of you would want to. But look at verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. I want to show you when the Spirit of God is in control of your life, what you can be to one another. It says in verse 32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I, I'm very grateful that God does not keep a record of all the things in the sense that we keep records of it with others. But His heart of love in you and His heart of love in me Stops that. Now, love that is patient and kind, love that will tolerate even when people treat you wrongly and stretch out for a long period of time to endure untold things. And love that is kind, a kindness that says to the other person, what can I do to help you? I want to be useful to you. That kind of love is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly or causing others to be disgraced, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And I go back to the Psalms, chapter 42 and verse 2. What is your thirst this morning and who are you attached to? The psalmist tells us very clearly, and he's one that really knows the downside of sin. And he says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants after thee. Oh, my God. The simplicity of the Christian walk. Come back to that place in your life. And the rest will take care of itself. Gifts, well, they'll, they'll be there, but you won't be focused on them. 
manifestations, when, if God chooses. But the key is you don't find your joy in any of that. You find your joy in the giver. That's the key. And that's what Paul's trying to do at the church of Corinth, to show them what love is so that they can see what they're not. That's his bottom line for the whole thing. Remember last week? Looks like a duck. Quacks like a duck. Flies like a duck. Acts like a duck. I think he's a duck. By the time you finish 1 Corinthians 13, love's like Christ. That love makes him act like Christ. That love even makes him look like Christ. I think he's a Christian. Bottom line. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 